0: Well, so far, it's been a pretty light week when it comes to economic data. But what little economic data has been released has been bad. And all of it evidences the recession that nobody wants to acknowledge, least of all the Federal Reserve. Let's start with the consumer credit numbers that came out on Monday. And not only was this number extremely weak, but the revisions to the prior month were even weaker. So the initial report for the growth in consumer credit in December was $21.3 billion. Now, of course, I don't think growing consumer credit is good. I think consumer credit actually undermines long-term living standards. That's the last thing that you want to do is borrow money to consume. And that's one of the points that I really hammered home in my book uh, how an economy grows and why it crashes and if you haven't bought that book you should get a copy you know by the way i talked to somebody who came by my booth at the the money show who loved that book and i asked him, you know did you got did you get the collectors edition and he said no i you know i already had the book i didn't just feel like getting you know the one that had a different cover and i reminded him you know there's two entirely additional chapters in the collectors edition so i didn't just you know, give you a fancy cover and include a few pictures. There's, there's two really good chapters in there that weren't in the original. So I definitely think that even if you have the original, you should get a copy of the collector's edition. And if you want, you can give the original to a friend and keep the collector's edition for yourself. But I really drove home the point of how destructive consumer credit was. I don't want consumers borrowing to consume. I want consumers saving to consume. I want businesses using our savings to invest in capital equipment to grow the economy. When you use up savings for consumption, you undermine long-term economic growth, and therefore future consumption is diminished by current consumption. But the problem is we're living in a bubble. And in order to sustain our bubble economy, consumers have to keep spending. But in order to keep spending, they have to keep borrowing because they're certainly not earning and they don't have any savings. So the only way consumers can keep spending is if they keep borrowing more money. And of course, this has to blow up eventually because this is all destructive. This is all going in the wrong direction and it leads to disaster. But right now, it's all about keeping the music going. And the fact that consumer credit was revised down from the originally reported $21.3 billion to just $6.4 billion of growth in December. And they were looking for January consumer credit to grow by $16.5 billion. And of course, this also includes student loans and auto loans, as well as credit card debt, right? It's all consumer consumer borrowing. They were looking for growth of $16.5 billion, And that's on top of the original $21.3 billion that we were originally told happened in December. But instead we got an increase of just $10.5 billion instead of $16.5 billion. So consumer credit really, the growth imploded in December and January. Now, I ask you this, right? If there's all this job creation that the government is talking about, Obama's bragging about it, we're creating all these jobs, why aren't these newly employed people going out and, and buying stuff why aren't they celebrating their new job by you know buying some new stuff on their credit card because after all they have all this income that they didn't have before they can afford a higher credit card payment you know certainly if you got a new job don't you need some new clothes to go with your new job i mean spruce up your wardrobe a little bit you would think or maybe just go out for a celebratory dinner right go out you know enjoy yourself you just got a job right but this shows you nobody is getting a job here. These jobs are going to people who already have one, right? This is a guy that lost a full-time job. He's got one part-time job, and now he gets another one. Or maybe somebody gets a part-time job for the first time, and it's really nothing to celebrate. I mean, you could barely pay your rent or pay your electric bills, so you're not going to be you know, stampeding over to the mall to celebrate the fact that you landed a minimum wage job for 15 hours a week. That is the reality, and the collapse in consumer credit backs that up. Also, we got the small business optimism index, which last month was um, 93.9. And there was an expectation that it would increase to 94.2, that small businesses would be a little bit more optimistic. Yet instead, it dropped the full point to 92.9. That is the lowest level in two years. So according to this measure of optimism, although maybe they can change it to a measure of pessimism. But according to this, small business is the least optimistic they've been in two years. Now, if that is the case, why are they hiring people? You would think if you're a small business owner and you start hiring a bunch of people, which is what everybody wants us to believe is going on, wouldn't you by definition be optimistic about your business before you commit to taking on more employees? you would think that hiring and optimism would go hand in hand. But in fact, optimism is plunging to a two-year low while hiring is going up. That doesn't make sense unless you understand the type of hiring that's going on. And it is hiring part-time workers to replace your full-time workers. So businesses are not net hiring anybody. They're just shuffling the, 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 the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? They're trading in. They're full-time workers for part-time workers. That's it. They're they're going to the bank with a 10. They're getting two fives. That's all they're doing. Or maybe they're actually ending up with fewer overall hours worked. But again, this confirms what I've been saying all along, that this rosy scenario that Obama is peddling, that fiction about all this job growth is just not true. Because if small businesses we're really hiring a bunch of people, they would be more optimistic because you need to be optimistic before you hire somebody because hiring somebody is a big decision because firing people sometimes ain't very easy. So you don't want to hire people unless you're certain that you're going to keep them. And so you need to be optimistic about the future of your business before you hire people. And the fact that optimism is plunging shows that people are not really getting hired. And that has been one of my points all along, which brings me to the data point that came out today. Today, this is the trifecta. Only hardly any economic data this week, but it's all been bad. And this is wholesale trade on inventories. Now, inventories were expected to drop slightly by 0.1, one-tenth of a percent, because they've been so bloated. And so we thought that inventories would have come down. But instead of dropping by 0.1, they increased by 0.3. And on top of that, they took the inventory for December that was originally reported as a drop of 0.1 and that became unchanged. So we didn't go down 0.1 from minus 0.1. We went up 0.3 from a zero. So it's even a bigger move up. But the reason that inventories spiked was because sales collapsed. And so the inventory to sales level just hit a new high at 1.35. This is a seven year high. The last time the inventory to sales ratio was this high was in April of 2009. We were still knee deep in the Great Recession. So, if this recovery is so strong or even exists, if so many jobs are being created, why can't these newly employed workers afford to buy the merchandise? that is sitting on the shelves of all these retailers. The reason is because they don't have jobs. There are no jobs, or they have low-paying part-time jobs, and they're not borrowing money. We just saw that in the collapse in consumer credit. They're not borrowing money. They're not spending money. So all this merchandise is just gathering dust on the shelves, and ultimately the inventory drawdown that we've been waiting for is going to have to be much bigger because it's piled up much higher. Because despite the fact that, Business owners are pessimistic. Obviously, they weren't pessimistic enough because they loaded up on too much inventory. They overestimated the ability of their customers to buy their products. And I think one of the other things they overestimated is just how many part-time workers they need. Because I do believe at some point this year, the lone remaining bright spot in this horrible landscape that we see the number of jobs being created, even that is going to turn down because at some point you're going to see the layoffs because we got more corporate news, corporate earnings. Most of it was bad. Lots of retailers, bad earnings, stocks collapsing. That's also what's happened in the last, uh, in the last few days. Even though the stock market is continuing to inch higher, and I believe the reason it's going up is because people are becoming more and more convinced that the Fed's not going to be raising rates. They're not going to raise rates in March, which the meeting, I think, is coming up next week. And when the year began, everybody thought they would raise rates in March, in June, and September, and December. That's why the market was tanking. That's why the market got off to its worst start in history. It was only because the data became so bad, and the Fed began to backtrack. And now the market started to assume that, uh, that the Fed was not going to be as aggressive. And that's the only reason that the market is rallying. But it's not just the stock market that's rallying. It's all the markets, oil above $38 a barrel. We've had a huge rally in oil. Also, some of the industrial metals have had huge spikes. And, of course, uh, the dollar is going down. It's been weakening across the board. The Australian dollar hit an eight-month high this morning. Canadian dollar was at a four-month high. No, the New Zealand dollar was also, I guess, at an eight-month high with the Aussie dollar until the Reserve Bank of New Zealand surprised the markets uh, this morning or this afternoon, our time, but this morning, uh, Kiwi time, and they cut interest rates from two and a half percent to two and a quarter percent. And that sent the New Zealand dollar tanking from up about one percent to down about one and a half percent. So the currency lost immediately about two and a half percent of its value as a result of this move. And you know, one of the reasons that the Reserve Bank gave for this rate cut was that inflation was not high enough. According to the Reserve Bank, year over year inflation is 1.6%, and they want it to be 2%. So, you know, they've made a decision that they don't think the cost of living is rising fast enough in New Zealand. And they want to make sure it rises faster because they specifically cited the strength of their currency as one of the reasons that they're concerned. And so they cut interest rates to weaken their currency to make the cost of living go up so that people in New Zealand can have a lower standard of living, although they didn't use those words. But that's basically what they're saying. Now, they also were worried about supposedly exports uh, based on problems they see in China. But I think those problems are already being resolved now that the dollar is going down that is taking a lot of pressure off the emerging markets taking a lot of pressure off china you know meanwhile everybody thinks it's a problem that the chinese have sold so many treasuries i mean i think you know this this is like manna from heaven i mean this is exactly what the chinese needed they managed to unload a bunch of treasuries And, uh, you know, I feel sorry for whoever was dumb enough to buy them. I mean, this is just a gift from heaven for the Chinese because they had so many treasuries. That was their problem, how to get rid of them uh, without collapsing the market. And so far, they've been able to get rid of a lot of them. And I think that's great news for the Chinese. Now, what they've also done is they've used some of that money to buy gold because while their forex reserves have been going down, their gold reserves have been going up. And in fact, I think they've been going up a lot faster than what they're acknowledging publicly because i think they're still lying about how much gold they have so i think uh the bank in new zealand is ultimately going to have to reverse course and raise interest rates just like i think the fed is going to reverse its hike and end up cutting i don't think this is the beginning of a bunch of rate cuts for the new zealand reserve bank i think this is going to be looked at as a mistake because i think the reserves bank next move is going to be to raise interest rates and not cut them again. Meanwhile, I still think the New Zealand currency is going to strengthen. Interestingly enough, you know, the Reserve Bank in New Zealand was really the first central bank to have an inflation uh, ceiling, an inflation target, although it really wasn't a target, it was a ceiling, because when they had the original reforms, because, you know, uh, New Zealand had been feeling the burn for a long time. I mean, it was like you know this the the uh, utopia version of uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, middle way, you know, uh, the, the 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 perfect sweet spot between capitalism and socialism, cradle to grave welfare state. Uh, they had everything uh, that uh, everybody admires supposedly about Sweden or places like that, and so New Zealand had all that in spades, and as a result of that. They went bankrupt. I mean, the country was broke. They went through a crisis. And they had tremendous economic reforms under uh, the Labor Party, actually. It was a Labor Party that ruined the economy, and they're the ones under this guy, Roger Douglas, that implemented all the reforms. And one of the major reforms was they reformed the, the central bank. And they basically told the central bank, your only function is to make sure that inflation stays under 2%. That's it. You don't have a dual mandate. You're not it's not about employment or economic growth. It's solely about inflation. That's your mandate. Keep inflation below 2% and that's what they did and it worked for a long time. But eventually they changed it from a 2% target, a ceiling to like a 1 to 3%. They they moved it up a little bit, but they made it a band, right? A one to keep inflation between 1 and 3% or something like that. And and so now because it's 1.6 The Reserve Bank is saying, look, we need to get it up. We want to get it to 2% to be in the middle of our band. But, of course, when they originally did this with the 2% ceiling, it wasn't a target. It wasn't like if inflation was 1.5, the central bank would think, oh, my gosh, we're we're, we're half a percent low. We need to do something to get up to 2%. If you were at 1.5%, you would be relieved that you weren't at 2%. Because if you were at 2%, that might mean that you might have to start tightening because you could go to 2.1%. And they had to keep it below two. So the more distance between the actual rate of inflation and 2%, the more breathing room they had. I mean, one and a half percent was better than 1.7, and one percent was better than one and a half. In fact, a half a percent was better than one. The lower the better. That was how it were, originally was. And I wish it had stayed that way. But now New Zealand is adopting the same nonsense as everybody else, somehow thinking that you have to have a target that if inflation is too low, that that's a problem. Instead of just inflation being too high a problem, now it's a problem if it's too low and if it's too high. So they justify some kind of sweet spot in the middle. But this is all a bunch of nonsense. Speaking about central bankers and nonsense, let's combine the two. Richard Fisher was on CNBC Today. And, you know, he was on a couple of months ago. And he was a guy that said, look, you know, we front-loaded economic growth, uh, you know, the, the Fed is a giant weapon that's out of bullets. And, you know, yeah, the stock market's going to go down and this is, you know, all part of what's going to happen. I mean, he was saying some things that central bankers rarely say. I mean, he had a moment of honesty, uh, at least semi-honesty. And so he was on again. And this time he was even more honest. Basically he said that the federal reserve injected monetary heroin and cocaine into the economy. Those are his words. And he said, now we're trying to keep it going with Ritalin, meaning we're still uh, providing an artificial stimulus to the economy. It's just that we've dialed it back down. We've, we've, we've taken the heroin and the cocaine away from the addicts, and we're expecting them to get by on Ritalin. And obviously he's saying Ritalin isn't enough, right? And so they're going into convulsions. We're having a withdrawal here. And he says, look, this is what's going to happen. And if the market goes down 20 or 30%, But where he was wrong is he says, you know, it's okay as long as it doesn't spill over into the real economy, as if the monetary heroin and cocaine didn't go into the real economy. It did. It just didn't produce as big a high. Right. The people on Main Street didn't have as wild a trip as the people on Wall Street. But it was the same heroin. And, you know, if Richard Fisher really believed that what the Fed did was good, would he use the analogy of heroin and cocaine? I mean, these are not good things, right? I mean, if you admit that you did heroin and cocaine to solve a problem, you wouldn't be bragging that you did the right thing. I mean, I use this analogy myself. I always called QE monetary heroin because I knew it was bad. I mean, if I thought it was good, right, they would call it medicine, right? Something, something positive. But basically, if Dick Fisher is also calling it heroin, then he knows it was bad. Otherwise, he wouldn't use those words. I mean, I knew it was heroin. I just thought the guys at the Fed thought that it was medicine. But apparently, Dick Fisher, because Dick Fisher says, look, I was opposed to this the whole time, right? I was against it. But I guess, you know— he, he submitted to peer pressure, right? He couldn't say no, like Nancy Reagan, who, you know, unfortunately passed away at the age of 94 uh, just the other day. But what she was famous for as being first lady was her campaign, just say no. Well, why couldn't Dick Fisher just say no? If he knew that the Fed was giving monetary heroin and cocaine to the economy or to the markets, why didn't he just say no? Why didn't he tell all the other people at the Federal Reserve to just say no? Just say no to monetary heroin and cocaine, right? If we say no to these substances in the real world, then the Fed should say no to them too. Because the reason I was opposed to the heroin, the monetary heroin, is because I knew what was in store for the economy when the hangover, right? When we came down off of that high, that was the problem. And what I was also afraid of is because we were going to get so high on cocaine and heroin that when they did try to take away those drugs and we did go into withdrawals, that we would get more of it and that eventually we would overdose on that monetary cocaine and heroin. And that's what's going to happen if we do QE4. That's what's going to happen if the Fed goes back down to zero And has to go back into qe i think we are going to overdose and what dies is the dollar because in order to prevent another financial crisis the government is going to sacrifice the dollar but in that kind of bargain with the devil you get something worse because a currency crisis is infinitely worse than a financial crisis and in fact if we have a currency crisis we're going to have a financial crisis too only it's going to be worse Now, I want to backtrack a little bit and talk politics and and tie that into the jobs numbers, because we just had more primaries yesterday. And Donald Trump, despite the efforts of the Republican establishment to convince people not to vote for him, he won three out of four of those primaries. And the handpicked favorite, Marco Rubio, didn't win any. And in fact, the more the Republican establishment tries to get people to vote for Marco Rubio, the fewer people support him. And the more they're against Donald Trump, the more votes Donald Trump gets. And that tells you something about the electorate, right? The people in the Republican Party, many of them are fed up with the Republican Party because— They've done nothing to really alter the trajectory that we're on. They've just gone along with uh, the big government policies. And it's also because the voters realize how bad things are and they know they were bad under Bush and they got worse under Obama. So why go back to Bush, right? We need to do something different. And the something different is Trump. He's the most different candidate in the race. But it's also interesting that another outsider is Ted Cruz. And even though Cruz is a sitting senator, he was a thorn in the Senate side. I mean, he got along with nobody. And and Donald Trump points that out. And I, and, I don't think that's winning him any support. I think that actually backfires because the fact that he didn't get along with anybody in Congress is actually one of his selling points because he wanted to do something different. You know, interestingly enough, Rand Paul, right, when he came into Senate, and he got to the Senate at the same time as Ted Cruz. And one of the problems that his father had, Ron, was that even though he was in Congress a long time, he was a lone wolf. He never really got anything done because nobody would would support what he did. He was always voting no. He was Dr. No. And that was one of the things I liked about him because he did say no to all this bad stuff, but he didn't really get anything accomplished in Congress. The one thing he accomplished was changing the mood of a lot of young people and getting a lot of young people to be more libertarian and to understand the constitution. And that is something that was, that that is certainly a substantial accomplishment. And another thing he accomplished was he got his son into the Senate. And what Rand wanted to do is he wanted to correct what was perceived to be a mistake that his father made. He wanted to reach out to the mainstream to try to be a little bit more friendly to maybe get a little bit more done to actually influence legislation more than his father was able to. But that actually backfired against him in the the Senate because what the public wanted was the guy that didn't get along, was the guy that was shaking things up. And basically, Ted Cruz was more of a Ron Paul in the Senate than Rand Paul was. And that's why he's the number two guy in the race, because he's the least favorite of the establishment, like all the guys that the establishment liked. but of course they liked Bush. I mean, he's, you know, he's Mr. Establishment. He got nowhere. He spent a fortune and he got nowhere. All of the mainstream candidates are gone. You know, the only one left really is Kasich and he's barely getting any votes. Uh, And then Rubio. And I mean, and he's probably going to be an afterthought too. I mean, he's not even going to win his own state of Florida. How pathetic is that? Right? So why, is Trump and, to a lesser extent, a Cruz so popular. And it's because of what I'm talking about with the jobs. The jobs are going away. For most people, the Obama recovery is actually worse than the Bush recession. That's how bad this recovery is, that it's worse than the recession that preceded it. So what have we recovered from if we're sicker? Now, not for everybody, certainly people on Wall Street... Are having more fun during this recovery, so called, than they did during the Great Recession, right? But the average guy, and I think the people who have it the worst are the white males. They're the guys that are being obliterated because, A, you know, there's no program. If you're a white guy, there's no program for you. No, you know, no one's shedding a tear for you. There's no, you're, you don't fall into some kind of special uh, privilege camp. So, you're, you know, no one is doing anything for the white guy. I mean, if you did that, you'd be accused of being racist. Uh, and so but white men have really been beaten up. And if you look at the labor force participation rate among white men, it went off the cliff. When Obama was uh, elected, I mean, it had been going down steadily for years, but then it just went over the edge of a cliff and the pace really accelerated. I mean, all these manufacturing jobs that are getting el- eliminated, a lot of white guys had those jobs. I mean, I'm not saying they were all white guys, but most men, I mean, men work in manufacturing more so than women. And, you know, whites are most of the population. I mean, blacks are what about 12 percent of the population. So You had a lot of white guys that had decent blue collar jobs. Now they don't. You know now they're they're hobbling together two or three crappy part time jobs. Their standard of living is going down. If you look at what's happened to the average, let's say white male, whether he's head of household or living on his own, over the last uh, seven six seven years, his income has gone down. His net worth has collapsed. He no longer owns a house, so he has no home equity. He's renting. He's struggling to make ends meet. You're they're buried up with in, in debt and. Obama's telling them how great the economy is, and they know it's lousy, and they blame the establishment. The Republicans are in Congress too, right? You got Republicans running the Senate, Republicans running the House, and so they're part of the problem. So Trump is part of the solution in their mind. It doesn't even matter what he's saying; he's obviously different. He brings a very different perspective, a very different background, and he's saying all the things that appeal to the angry white guy. And of course, he's also appealing to some of the angry white gals and uh, younger people, but that's where he's really killing it. And it's interesting that that's exactly the demographic group where Bernie Sanders is killing it, right? He is killing Hillary Clinton with white men. And it's not because The men are sexist. They don't want to vote for a woman. It's because they're fed up and they don't want to vote for the establishment candidate. And that's Hillary Clinton. They want somebody who's going to shake things up. They want somebody who represents something different. They want somebody who the party elites don't want. I mean, every time guys come out from the Republican Party and say, we got to stop Trump, that just excites the Trump supporters even more. Because if the Republican Party doesn't like him, he must be good. Right. I mean, I think the same thing is happening uh, with uh, the Democrats. You know, there's an old saying about, you know, well, the devil, you know, is better than the devil you don't know. But in this case, I think it's not. Nobody wants the devil they know. They know the devil that is Hillary Clinton. They know the devil that would be, you know, Marco Rubio or anybody that the Republican establishment wanted, whether it was Bush or any of the other mainstream candidates that were in this race. No one wants that devil. We're tired of that devil. We'd rather take a chance on the devil we don't know, because it's got to be better than the one that we know, because the one that we know is so bad. And so Trump is making a lot of promises, but you know what? People are willing to take a shot that he's going to actually deliver because nobody else ever has. In fact, here's the ironic part. The main reason that all these Republican establishment types are coming out against Trump is because they're saying... If we nominate Trump, Clinton is going to win. So a vote for Trump in the primary is a vote for Clinton in the general election. Because everybody's saying that Trump can't win. The irony is he's probably the only Republican who can win. And the truth of the matter is the Republicans would rather lose with Rubio than win with Trump. That's how much they dislike Trump or more importantly, what he stands for, which is shaking up the party, which is the grip that the establishment has on that party. That's what they're concerned about. So they'd rather go down with the R- SS Rubio, go down with that ship, than, than float and win with Donald Trump. Because a win for Trump is a loss for the Republican establishment. And, you know, might they lose with Cruz? Cruz, I think, doesn't have as good a chance. Of winning is Trump, but they don't want Cruz either. Because again, Cruz has been a problem for the Republican establishment in the Senate. So he would be an even bigger problem in the White House. So again, I think they'd probably rather lose with Rubio than win with Cruz. But again, the main reason I think Trump is the best chance the Republicans have of winning is because a lot of Democrats are also upset at the status quo. They don't like the Democratic Party either. They had a lot of hope from Obama. And, you know, a lot of the black voters are still giving Obama the benefit of the doubt, and that is accruing to Hillary Clinton, who is getting 85 90% of the black vote, right? That vote is going to her in part because of her ties to President Obama. So even though Obama has certainly let down his core constituency right? African-Americans, they are also worse off than they were seven years ago. They're not willing to throw the president out or blame the president. They're still, uh, you know, giving him credit. Now, maybe that's racism on the part of the black community, because if Obama were white, I don't think that Hillary would enjoy anywhere near the support that she does now, right? If, if, If she were the heir apparent to a white president. So I think there's a bit of racism there that black voters are not willing Uh, to acknowledge what a lousy job President Obama did. I think the color of his skin maybe is more important than the actual results because all the hope and change that he promised, he didn't deliver. You remember some of these people, you know, some of the people who thought their whole life was going to change. They never have anything to worry about. Obama was going to solve all their problems. He hasn't solved anybody's problems. He's made people's problems worse, but he's not being blamed. But a lot of the people in the Democratic Party who are not voting for Clinton, who are voting for Sanders, and he's getting a lot of votes. He came out of nowhere. He's getting a bunch of votes. And he is winning, as I said earlier, the angry white man. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of white guys in this country. And a lot of those guys are going to cross party lines and they will vote for Trump. They're not going to vote for Hillary. They're going to vote for Trump. These are Reagan Democrats or blue collar guys, uh, union workers. Uh, They lost their job. And, you know, I think the labor unions, I think I've said this before, have traditionally gone big. You know, the AFL-CIO, these guys have all gone for the Democrats. They could go for Trump. In in the general election, I can see that. I can see a lot of blue-collar guys, labor guys, going and voting for Trump over Hillary Clinton. Because what is Hillary Clinton? More of the same. Trump might be something different. And that's going to appeal to Democrats as well as Republicans. Now, again, it's not that I am endorsing Trump. I have no idea. Trump could surprise me. He could be a good president. Or he could be a lousy president. We don't know. Right? But that's just it. We know Hillary Clinton is going to be a lousy president. There's no chance that she's going to be a good president. At least Donald Trump, there's a chance, right? And he at least is talking about the problems. The solutions aren't going to work, but maybe because he knows that the solutions that will work are bad politics. So maybe now he's just saying what he knows he needs to say to tap into that vein, to get all the angry voters, the disgruntled voters from both parties, and the independents. There's a lot of independents. And remember, there's only a few swing states that Trump might be able to do very good in. And so all this talk about how Trump can't win, he's the guy that will win. In fact, I'm pretty sure if I was a bet man, if it's Trump and Clinton, Trump wins. Right? If it's anybody else against Clinton, it's a toss-up. I think Clinton has a better chance. If you If you get an establishment guy from the Republican Party versus an establishment guy from the Democratic Party, the Democrats might win just by default because they're promising more free stuff. And, you know, if it's going to be two establishment guys, you might as well vote for the guy that's promising more free stuff. So that's how these elections have been working. Now, maybe if the economy is bad enough and they want to throw the bums out, that Hillary Clinton will be one of the bums they want to throw out because she is representative of the establishment. I mean, the fact that Hillary is doing so well with minorities, with African-Americans, that's not going to help her in the general election. Because, you know, the Democrats get the African-American vote anyway. They get 85, 90 percent of that vote every time. So doing well with African-Americans, that helps her a lot in the primary. But it's not going to help her at all in the general election. What she's going to lose is a lot of white Democrats that might normally vote Democrat, but you put Trump on that ticket— Based on what he's saying, based on the message that he's running on, and he's gonna get their vote. There's so much factually incorrect information and underreporting by legacy media today. Shouldn't there be truth in media? Well, there is. Truth and Media, recently, a novel thought is now a reality with TruthinMedia.com. Led by award-winning journalist Ben Swan, TruthinMedia.com is the source for uninfluenced, reliable, fearless news where journalists pursue real questions, not conspiracies. Make TruthinMedia.com your default browser's homepage today and get breaking news and commentary that speaks the truth to power. It's also where you can tune into The Peter Schiff Show every week. Visit TruthinMedia.com today. That's truthinmedia.com. Access the Truth in Media RS feed by visiting truthinmedia.com forward slash feed. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They are all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold.